This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. In the uh, uh, so-called um, Hindu tradition, uh, which is kind of a, a modern term, apparently, but for this whole array of Indian spiritual practices... Uh, sometimes said that there are many uh, different methods of practice, different types of yoga. Yoga literally means um, union or unity. So like in Buddhism, we have the Yogacara tradition <clears throat> that's emphasizing the unity of subject and object, of grasper and grasped, the non-duality of grasper and grasped. So yoga is, is about non-duality, unity of uh, apparent opposites, unifying uh, that which appears to be separate. And there's lots of different types of yoga. Uh, <clears throat> and this is kind of, in non-Buddhist um, Indian traditions, there's um, this array of types of yoga. So, um, <clears throat> for example, there's, uh, there's hatha yoga. Hatha, hatha means something like, um, like um, force or energy, I think, and uh, and hatha yoga is using the body, the physical body, and the um, breath, and the um, <clears throat> the the subtle body, the subtle energy, the prana, the body of prana. Is energy that moves through subtle channels in the body. It's, it's, um, working with these energies of body and breath and, uh, <clears throat> and subtle, subtle energy to, um, to bring about this unity, to discover this unity, hatha yoga. So, um, as I bring up these different types of yoga, uh, I'm bringing them up because uh, I would propose that we have all these elements in our Zen tradition. We don't call them by these different yogic names, but we have these elements. <coughs> so Hatha Yoga, we have a lot of emphasis on the posture in, um, in Zen. Right? Uh, detailed instructions about um, arranging the posture, particularly... The, the spine, um, quite upright, which is a characteristic of all hatha yoga traditions also. So that the subtle energy that moves through the central channel that's along the, um, spine can flow freely and unhindered. And we, uh, <clears throat> we have hand mudra tucked into our uh, lower belly with the little fingers of our hand mudra touching uh, 
what's called the Dantian in uh, Chinese, the Tanden in Japanese, the, the field of ambrosia, a couple inches below the navel, where um, in the Hatha Yoga traditions they say this is the home, that the, the residence of, um, of prana, of the really like clear flowing prana, lives exactly at this place where this little fingers touch the abdomen. So that's, we make this contact point there. I think sometimes it can feel like you really make a clear contact right at that point. It feels like a little electrical impulse. It's, um, the energy is flowing nicely. We complete a circuit. So that's part of this hand mudra. It's a hatha yoga practice, we could say. And, uh, we keep our head balanced. We, we imagine the back of our head being lifted up to the sky. And therefore, that brings our chin in a little bit. We don't exaggerate it too far, but, um, but our head, we try not to let it lean forward too much. We, we tuck our chin in a little and lift, as we lift the back of our head, aligning everything just so. And then we let our breath settle into the lower belly. I think we, I don't mind calling this, uh, elements of hatha yoga. We have this. I think, um, any, um, <clears throat> any authentic spiritual tradition around the world ideally has some elements of these different types of yoga. <clears throat> Zen definitely. The breath and the posture, particularly breathing down here, letting everything settle and fro- flow freely. And we feel it <coughs> when it's, when it's flowing freely. So there's that hatha yoga element. And, uh, then there's, um, in Indian yoga, there's karma yoga, which, uh, karma means like activity, intentional activity. And this refers to like, um, our work in the world, our selfless service. Sometimes they translate karma yoga. Um, so-called work practice. Not just work, but work as practice to make our, our activities, anything that we're doing that is of some benefit to others, we make it an offering. We can work hard as an offering to others. And that make, that's what makes it a yoga as opposed to just um, a bunch of busy work. It's karma yoga when it's selflessly offered. could be any wholesome activity. And of course, we have this in Zen. We call it um, samu. It means work. <laughs> work as practice. And uh, from the early days of Chinese Zen, this has been part Maybe, maybe uniquely emphasized more in the Zen tradition than other Buddhist traditions. Um, manual labor and work as, as practice, uh, <clears throat> um, to bring the practice into all our activities. So I think many of us appreciate that part about Zen. We can make, make our work practice. So we, we, uh, in our lineage, we, we really honor the Tenzo as um as a kind of like one of the great practice roles because it's just 
working hard in the kitchen, uh, um, selflessly preparing food to serve the Sangha. So um, Dogen Zendi sees the Tenzo as like an essential practice position. It's not just a busy, kind of busy work that we need to eat, so we got to get somebody to do it. It's like a practice position. Right? And one of the most important, this is karma yoga, hopefully an element of all, of all authentic spiritual traditions. <clears throat> and then we have, um, uh, in the Indian tradition, bhakti yoga. <clears throat> so, uh, bhakti means like devotion, devotional practice. So, um, an- another way to, um, let go of the separate self. You could see all these yogas are ways to let go of the separate self and find this unity of self and other. So, uh, devotion, bhakti yoga is the, is the path of, of, uh, like surrender and, um, almost like, uh, uh, maybe a more kind of ecstatic, uh, path in Indian bhakti yoga, um, making extensive offerings to deities and, um, arousing the strong emotion, uh, that brings tears to the eyes and, and using, using practices that arouse this emotional, devotional energy, like singing, <laughs> ecstatic singing and music, right? So, um, Indian bhakti yoga has those elements, but in Zen, we have a, a kind of cool version of, um, bhakti. It's not so ecstatic, but we definitely have the elements, uh, our, um, <clears throat> like our chanting services. Ideally, this is the spirit we're, of service. We're making offerings of flowers, light, incense, and our chanting is an offering to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas <clears throat> and the Zen ancestors. Devotion to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and ancestors as a way to, um, let go of our, um, our small self that, that feels like, I'm gonna do this practice on my own. We're surrendering to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Uh, and I think most spiritual traditions have some kind of devotional practice like this. In Japanese, we say kuyo means uh, making offerings, which is a translation of the uh, Sanskrit puja. Puja means making offerings. So some traditions would call our morning and evening service morning and evening puja. That the heart of of our services is making offerings of incense, flowers, light, sometimes food and tea. Sometimes, um, chanting and bowing. These are all offerings to, um, the inconceivable, um, ever present, all pervading, uh, Buddhas. The eternal, 
all-pervading Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. <clears throat> we surrender ourselves. Prostration, that's the feeling. It's a, it's a bhakti practice. We, we drop our body to the floor, if possible, and um, lower our separate self before the inconceivable uh, compassionate Buddhas of the ten directions and three times. <clears throat> and partly I bring this up because um, I kind of feel like this like Denkoe Sashin that we're that we're in right now is um, kind of maybe emphasizing this bhakti element a little more than the usual Sashin. <clears throat> because we're bringing up these ancestors of the lineage and talking about them um, extensively, long-windedly, <laughs> where, uh, uh, and the stories might not be that interesting, but we're uh, we're devote we're trying to arouse devotion for this for this lineage of um, ancestors that compassionately um, transmitted the light up to today. Trying to get our our um, our bhakti kind of activated. Buddhas and ancestors of old were as we. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors, revering Buddhas and ancestors, devotion to Buddhas and ancestors. Bhakti yoga for Buddhas and ancestors. Well, we practice that. We are one Buddha and one ancestor. There is the yoga, the unity of us, the practitioner, and the Buddhas. We are revere, when we revere Buddhas and ancestors, when we devote ourselves to Buddhas and ancestors, we realize the oneness of ourselves and the Buddhas and ancestors. We are one Buddha and one ancestor. <clears throat> Arousing bodhicitta, the aspiration, the altruistic aspiration for Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. Arousing this bodhi-mind. We are one bodhi-mind, the same bodhi-mind, the same mind of awakening as all the Buddhas and ancestors. Because these Buddhas and ancestors um, extend their compassion to us freely and without limit, lovingly, compassionately offering themselves to us, we are able to attain Buddhahood and even let go of the attainment. So this Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon, our ancestor Ehe Dogen's verse for arousing uh, the vow to be a Buddha for the benefit of all beings is a kind of bhakti yoga uh, chant, I think. <clears throat> Dogen Zendi writes an essay called 
arousing bodhicitta, hotsu bodhaishin, where he says, uh, the 28 Indian ancestors, like the ones we've been talking about, and the six early Chinese Zen ancestors, and all other great Zen ancestors, are in fact bodhisattvas, uh, not Buddhas, or Shravakas, or Prateka Buddhas. Kind of interesting. Sometimes we, we, uh, we imagine that the ancestors are all Buddhas, but this term Buso, that sometimes is translated as Buddha ancestors, uh, according to this statement, uh, it may be better to translate it as Buddhas and ancestors, which it's often translated as, and there's one, I think, modern Japanese scholar practitioner who says, whenever we hear this term, Buso, we should understand it as Buddhas and ancestors. And the, the Zen ancestors are those bodhisattvas on the path to Buddhahood. So we chant the names of the seven ancient Buddhas through Shakyamuni Buddha, and then beginning with Mahakashapa, we call him the first ancestor. So Shakyamuni Buddha is, strictly speaking, not an ancestor. He's a Buddha, and then Mahakashapa is the first ancestor. And um, we can um, devote ourselves to these ancient ancestors through their stories. And... Uh, <clears throat> and... Um, give ourselves to this lineage of transmission of light. So we have this bhakti yoga um, element, maybe a little less emphasized in, say, like American Zen. Like Japanese Zen, there's probably most temples and monasteries, there's probably more time spent in puja, making offerings and uh, chanting and um, ritual devotional practice. Probably more time spent on that than in Zazen. But I think Americans and we tend to maybe put more time into Zazen and uh, less into this into into this bhakti yoga. But it's we do it, right? And we can do it we can do it on our own. There's a traditional practice after Dharma transmission to, to, um, chant certain things every day and then to, to then bow to the um, names of the Buddhas and ancestors. Like we do in morning service. We recite the names of the ancestors and the, the officiant bows, um, every few names to, to different ancestors. There's that practice of doing that um, every day for the rest of one's life. So uh, I don't do that every day. I sometimes take uh, weekends off, but I like to most days to, to do that practice on my own if I haven't chanted it in the zendo as a kind of bhakti yoga path, as a heart, as a heart practice. And then, um, then the tradition is to from the seven Buddhas before Buddha, through Shakyamuni Buddha, through the 28 Indian ancestors, through the Chinese ancestors, 
and the Japanese ancestors through Suzuki Roshi and um, up to one's own root teacher. Uh, and then one bows three times to the name of one's root teacher. <clears throat> um, ideally, with feeling. <laughs> I think the feeling is what makes it a bhakti path. Sometimes these things can just become rote. Forget why we're doing it. We're just doing it because it's an old tradition or something. <clears throat> so then, um, finally in, in, um, in Indian yoga, we have the path of jnana yoga. Jnana means like knowing or wisdom or non-dual awareness. And that's the, um, path of, um, just realizing through meditation. True, through um, hearing, contemplating, and meditating, realizing our Buddha nature directly. So I think a Zen path, maybe that's the most prominent type of yoga, is this jnana yoga. At least in Sashin, we're putting most of our time into just silently sitting. But that silent sitting includes um, hatha yoga, posture and breathing. It includes... Um, Times in between cleaning up and taking care of the temple as karma yoga. It includes, um, chanting three times a day and during meals too as, um, bhakti yoga. <clears throat> Sometimes Zen we say, well, it's just a one practice path, but actually I would say it includes all four of those types of yoga. And um, we've been hearing Keizan Zenji's, uh, some words from his Zazen Yojin Ki, his points to keep in mind for Zazen. So um, before we go back to our root text, um, <clears throat> here's some kind of just practical, very practical tips from Keizan Zenji. Because, you know, he started this Zazen Yojinki saying, Zazen means to clarify the mind ground and dwell comfortably in your true nature. That's really what Zazen is, but it's maybe not that practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a jnana yoga teaching, pointing out directly the nature of reality. But here's some we might call hatha yoga practices in the same text. During Zazen, uh, there's various, um, hindrances that can, like, distract us from zazen or, um, obscure, uh, the radiance of ordinary mind, of awareness itself, <clears throat> which are, um, the Buddha taught there's these five hindrances. One is like, a, um, Desire for something else than this long periods of zazen. When is it going to end? When is this painful zazen period going to end? When is lunch coming? This kind of is is kind of distracts us. Desire for some other experience, some other sensory experience than the one we're having. 
this is common. So if we if we notice it, we can notice. Oh, if we if we keep kind of indulging that that uh, desire, we keep not enjoying zazen. So if we catch it, oh, I'm just wishing for this to end. Can I, at least to some degree, just release that and return to the present? It's a practical thing we can do. And the opposite of this desire is aversion. I have this, this, um, I'm starting to have aversion to the doan because they're not ringing the bell. They could save me by ringing the bell and end this period. (laughs) Or like aversion to the situation or, Tokyo keeps coughing and clearing his throat right when I'm about to enter samadhi. (coughs) 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 Ah, Such aversion to that. So if you notice that, that's just a distraction from this presence. Just let it go and return to the presence. So those are our bigger distractions. As we sit more and more, maybe they decrease day by day. And then we have these subtler distractions called... um, dullness and um, scatteredness, or dullness and just um, restlessness. So this is what um, Kazan offers some practical tips. When you feel dull, that means like sleepy zazen, it's hazy, you can't, it's not clear, you'd just rather be asleep, you just... Um, some, maybe we're legitimately tired, but maybe we're just like bored and we're sort of checking out. In whatever case, if, when you feel dull, Kazan says, place your mind on the hairline at your forehead. So it's like the edge of your hair at your forehead. So he doesn't mention as you get older, your hairline might recede. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean you, pl- you move your mind up your head as you get older? Maybe. So somewhere like in the top of the forehead or between your eyes. So somewhere in this area of the forehead, place your mind there. Place your mind there? Well, our mind is, is, um, attending to all different things. And like when we're following the breath in the lower belly, um, you could say we're placing the mind on the sensation where the little fingers touch the abdomen two inches below the navel. You can place the mind there. But when we're dull, it's kind of like raising the prana, the subtle energy, can um, be done by by attending to more like this the forehead area. Rather than down here is good for grounding. If we're, if we're dull and sleepy, these are things you can just try out if you feel dull. No guarantee, but in the 1300s, Kazan offered this as Zazen tips. When you feel dull or murky, uh, sleepy, um, hazy, place your mind on, on your hairline or between your eyes. Also, he says, um, you can also we usually sit with our eyes open, but he said also you can open your eyes wider if you're feeling sleepy and your eyes start to close more and more. It's okay to open them wider. It's, and feel, feel, feel if some energy comes by doing that.
or and then between zazen, you can kind of rub your eyes. <coughs> Classic way of pe- pe- uh, caricature almost for waking up in the morning, rubbing the eyes. Uh, so that's if you feel dull, if you feel distracted, like restless, like um, agitated. That's the opposite of dull. Like I can't settle down. My mind is just keeps thinking obsessively thinking and um, in a kind of restless way, this opposite of dullness, but also a distraction, and place the mind on the tip of your nose or on your lower abdomen, two inches below the navel in the tanden, the field of ambrosia. So... uh, he says, in general, place your mind on the palm of your hand mudra while sitting. So even if you're not distracted, this is kind of the area to let your, if you're going to let your attention rest anywhere in the body at any location, this is a good one. Where the little fingers touch the abdomen, he says, in the palm of your hand, but I think he means just in this area. Especially if we're, if we're, um, agitated or scattered, the attention is usually too kind of high up, so we're trying to bring it down, ground it down here. <clears throat> he also says, um, Kazan says, if your mind is is um, is restless or distracted, you can count your breaths. So, of course, many people do this, right? But in all these... Um, you know, thousands of pages of Zen teachings from our lineage ancestors, they almost never talk about the breath. I think this is maybe the one place Kazan does mention it. And Dogen mentions it, I think, one time in his extensive record where he says, um, know that a long breath is long and a short breath is short. But usually they're emphasizing more like um, zazen means to clarify the mind ground and dwell comfortably in your nature, um, directly entering into the ocean of Buddha nature, be like space. Usually they talk more like that. But this is practical instructions, and interestingly, especially if the mind is restless or scattered. So I think that um, like when Suzuki Yoshi came and most of the Japanese teachers who brought Zen to this country, I think they usually taught following the breath. And even modern Japan, they teach that. So we could understand that as based on Keizan's teaching, assuming that most people are distracted or restless most of the time. So we shouldn't just start with being like space. Um, Follow the breath is a good way to calm the mind. If the mind's already calm, maybe then we don't need to follow the breath. That's kind of how what Kazan seems to be implying here. Um, or, these are different things you can do when the mind is restless or scattered and distracted. Count your breaths or raise up a phrase, a Zen saying like, what is it that comes like this? What is it that's Arriving thus. That's a kind of like 
settles the mind. He says, choose a plain, plain, flavorless saying like this. Don't bring up a long, complicated Zen story that'll, if you're, if you're agitated, that'll make you more agitated. But just what is it that's coming thus? Almost like a huado in, um, <coughs> in, uh, the Rinzai lineage, a, um, a simple saying to kind of focus the mind. So Kizan seems to be, um, offering that as a method. Counting the breath or raising up a phrase silently to yourself. What is it that comes like this? What is it that's arriving moment after moment like this? <clears throat> and then, uh, Kazan says, when you sit for a long time, even without trying to calm the mind, it will naturally be free from distraction. So that's why we have session, where we can sit for a long time. How wonderful that maybe after five days of this, uh, the mind will at least to some extent sometimes be more free from distraction. I think most people do find this somewhat true. We shouldn't rely on it. At the day five, there should be no more distraction. Well, that's maybe too much. But in general, we sit long because it's kind of a practical thing. Of The mind really does settle down more when we sit longer. So what a, what a great opportunity um, to be in session. <coughs> The ninth Indian Zen ancestor was Venerable Buddha Mitra, which means like friend of awakening. He heard yesterday's eighth ancestor, Buddha Nandi, the joy of Awakeness, say, your speech is intimate with your true mind, and not even your mother and father can compare in intimacy. Your actions are in harmony with the way And this is what the mind of Buddhas is. If you search externally for a Buddha with marks or characteristics, he will not resemble you. If you want to know your original mind, you are neither one with it nor separate from it. And Buddha Mitra, upon hearing this, realized great awakening, great satori. <clears throat> so that's today's story. Um, it will maybe make more sense as we uh, unfold the background. <clears throat> Buddha Mitra was from the kingdom of Dirga and belonged to the Vaishya class, uh, the merchants.
caste. Buddha Nandi was going around teaching and came to a Vaishya house in the city of Dirga. Seeing a white light rising above the house, he said to his followers, there must be a holy man in this house. It's very similar to yesterday's story where um, that ancestor saw this um, this bright cloud above the village and knew that there was a um, that there was a a future ancestor there. There's other stories, right, of like seeing these unique stars above above a village and then going to that village to find a holy one. Other traditions have stories like that. So, um, so Buddha Nandi saw this white light rising above the house and said, there must be a holy man, a sage in this house. No word escapes his mouth, but he must be a vessel of the Mahayana, the great vehicle. His feet never tread the ground because he knows that touching the ground will only soil them. So he will be my successor. Um, And when he finished speaking these words, an elder of the house appeared at the door, bowed to him and said, What do you want? (laughs) And uh, Buddha Nandi said, I'm seeking a jisha, an attendant. The um, the attendant of a of a teacher, and the uh, the elder of the house said, "Well, I only have one son, and he's now fifty years old, but he's never spoken or walked. That's why he lives at home <laughs> at, at age fifty. He's never spoken or walked, and." Uh, <clears throat> Buddha Nandi said, if it is as you say, truly, then he will be my disciple. And when um, Buddha Mitra saw him, Buddha Mitra, the, the 50-year-old, silent and um, um, unwalking son, saw uh, Buddha Nandi and heard these words, he suddenly stood up walked for the first time in 50 years, bowed, and spoke for the first time in 50 years, and said in a verse, (laughs) (laughs) Father and mother are not um, intimate with me, really, With whom am I most intimate? Even the Buddhas are not my way. With what way am I most intimate? That's what he said. His first words. And Buddha Nandi then replied in this, this verse that forms the main case here. I'll read it again. Because now maybe it will make more sense. He already knew that the um, <clears throat> that this um, boy had never spoken and never walked. His dad told him that. <clears throat> so now uh, the teacher Buddha Nandi says 
to Buddha Mitra, your speech, and I think he means like your speechless speech, you're not talking all these years. Your speech is intimate with your true mind. And these words you just spoke for the first time are intimate with your true mind. <clears throat> and not even your mother and father can compare in intimacy, which is kind of like repeating the student's verse. Father and mother are not really intimate with me. Your speech is most intimate with your true mind. Even your mother and father cannot compare in intimacy. <clears throat> your actions, your, your, your movement and activity, like your non-activeness for 50 years, and you're getting up and bowing right now for the first time, are in harmony with the way. And this is what the mind of Buddhas is. <clears throat> What's the mind of Buddhas? When your speech and your actions are one with the way. If you search externally for a Buddha with characteristics, that Buddha won't resemble you. Kind of implying that you're like a Buddha with no special characteristics. If you want to know your original mind, you are neither one with it nor separate from it. <clears throat> you, this person uh, I'm speaking to, Buddha Mitra, are neither one with your original mind nor separate from your original mind. You're not the same as your original mind, but you're not different from your original mind. That's the kind of person you are. And Buddha Mitra, upon hearing this, was greatly awakened. <coughs> and when he heard this wonderful verse and was awakened, he took seven steps forward. He'd never walked before, but he took these seven steps. And uh, this is probably um, some connection to the, to the old story that the Buddha, when the baby Buddha was born, he, um, as soon as he was born, he'd never walked before either. He took seven steps and said, um, in the heavens above and on the earth below, I alone am the honored one. <clears throat> I, this true self, alone, because there is no other, am what is honored by the whole world. And uh, so here, Buddha Mitra took seven steps. And Venerable Buddha Nandi said, This person met a Buddha in ancient times, and made vast great vows of compassion. He's never spoken or walked until now because he was thinking of the difficulty of turning his back on the love of his father and mother. Which, uh, in other words, seems to imply that he wanted to leave home and uh, practice the, the home-leaver way of the Buddhas and ancestors but his kind parents were so loving, um, he knew that if he actually ever stood up and walked, he would walk out of the house and leave home. But his parents were so kind, he 
consciously or unconsciously thought, I better not walk at all. Because if I, if I ever walk, I'm going to walk out of this home. And my parents are so kind, it would, it would be, um, it would, they would be so sad if I left. At least as a young boy, if I left. But maybe he thought them, now I'm 50 years old. They might like me to get out of the house, actually. <laughs> but I'm so used to not walking. I'm so used to, um, uh, dwelling at home because I don't want to, um, turn my back on my parents or have them, I respect them so much. They've given me this body and, um, <clears throat> there's these kind of issues sometimes. People not being able to, to leave home because of, um, family obligations. <clears throat> I love and compassion. So, um, but he served his time um, at home, lovingly caring for his parents. We could imagine, and uh, and now this this teacher shows up, Buddha Nandi, and says um, he's never spoken or walked because he was thinking of the difficulty of turning his back on the love of his father and mother, and. Um, <clears throat> Kazan doesn't quote this section, but in the, um, in the Chinese lamp records that Kazan's pulling all these stories from, it's, um, has a little addendum here that's kind of nice that I'll just let you know that, um, that at this point in the original Chinese record, the father says to Buddha Nandi, I request you now to give my son the full precepts. In other words, to let him leave home. Which I think is a nice part of the story because the father hears this. Your son's never walked because he was afraid to leave home. And now the father says, please, now you, as a Dharma teacher, show up here. Please, um, please let him leave home, which means give him the precepts of a monk. And, uh, Buddha Nandi said to Buddha Mitra, his new Jisha, his new attendant, I entrust the Buddha's treasury of the true Dharma I to you. Do not let it be cut off in the future. <clears throat> so um, it's kind of like a, like a Dharma transmission when, as they first meet there. For some reason, Kazan skips that part. Now, here's Kazan's commentary. Truly, father and mother are not as intimate with me as, um, as my speech is intimate with my own true mind. <clears throat> He's quoting, um, he's quoting the verse of, uh, Buddha Mitra. Truly, father and mother are not as close to me as my authentic speech is close to my mind, and the Buddhas are not truly my way. There's another, um, uh, line from Buddha, Buddha not, not Buddha Mitra's verse. 
Buddhas aren't even intimate enough with me. What way is really most intimate? Even Buddhas are not intimate enough. So these are lines from uh, Buddha Mitra's the student's verse. And Kazan says, If you want to know what intimacy really is, you cannot compare it with your father and mother. Of course we're intimate with our father and mother, but I think it's an example of even more intimate than that. If you want to know what the way really is, you cannot learn it from Buddhas. Even learning the way from some other Buddhas is not intimate enough. If you want to know why, your seeing and hearing do not require someone else's eyes and ears, nor do your hands and feet need someone else to move them. <clears throat> so this is uh, now back to this direct pointing uh, to uh, this ever-present... <clears throat> Ordinary mind, this ordinary knowing <coughs> that is the um, true nature of, of all sentient beings. There's something it's like to be a living, knowing being, isn't there? We know that we're alive and aware. We all know this if we stop to check. There's something it's like to to be able to know anything, to be able to experience anything. So uh, this something it is like is, um, is another name for Buddha nature. So ordinary. So ordinary that it's that we tend to overlook it and look for something more extraordinary. Because um, what's so great about the fact of just being aware, of knowing? We examine it when we when we settle into just being the presence of awareness more and more um, <clears throat> wholeheartedly. Then we can start to examine this knowing presence of awareness, and um, particularly we can examine. Is this knowing presence of awareness, is it actually ever discontent? Is it ever lacking anything? I, Kokyo, can feel discontent and I can feel like I'm lacking all kinds of things. But, uh, but those are just feelings of Kokyo. And then meanwhile, there's a knowing of these feelings. There's a knowing of this experience I call discontent. And the knowing of the discontent is not discontent. The awareness of discontent is not discontent. It just allows this experience called discontent or suffering to arise. It graciously hosts uh, a moment of suffering, a guest called suffering, um, comes to visit, and uh, this the host that we call ordinary mind, spacious awareness, hosts this guest called suffering in a gracious way, hosts in a loving, compassionate way. 
and you're suffering, this that's okay. It's okay with me you're suffering. Just sit down and have some tea. And um and uh you're welcome here, even though you're suffering. It's fine. And even if you want to have a uh um temper tantrum in your suffering and knock all the teacups off the table, you're welcome to. Because I'm the kind of host that um allows everything. You can have a temper tantrum. It's okay, because I'm just aware of you having a temper tantrum. And I, the awareness, uh, am not bothered by any experience. And I'm also not um, thrilled by any experience. I'm just this ordinary mind that's present and aware, but is not suffering, is always free by its very nature. This is the main point of these teachings of ordinary mind. There's an ordinary mind that's not suffering, even when I'm suffering and you're suffering, and therefore it's a refuge when I'm suffering and you're suffering. There's one who's not suffering, even while I'm suffering. And if we can discover that one, take refuge in that one, and uh, <coughs> be that one, it's... This is liberation. And if it were, um, if it were temporary, if ordinary mind were temporary, if it were like coming and going, then it wouldn't be a totally reliable refuge. If it were sometimes, um, not free, <coughs> it wouldn't be, um, such a reliable refuge. So that's part of these teachings of permanence or unchanging. We're looking for a a liberation, a freedom that is always free. <clears throat> Doesn't mean I'm always free, but there's a there's a realm, our true nature is always free. We can explore that anyway. <clears throat> so here Kazan says, uh <clears throat> he said Buddha non Buddha Mitra said the Buddhas are not my way uh and never took a step on this way. Oh wait a second, no, or further up here. Um <clears throat> If you, Kazan said, if you want to know what the way really is, you cannot learn it from Buddhas. If you want to know why, you're seeing and hearing. Seeing and hearing are types of knowing, are, are, uh, are modes of knowing, aren't they? <clears throat> and this knowing, is just always knowing without being divided into subject and object. So um, if we look carefully, our seeing and hearing are modes of this non-dual knowing also. <clears throat> Usually it seems like there's a seer over here and a seen color over there. That's a dualistic seeing. But um, if we look carefully, 
we can discern how these colors that we're seeing are not external to awareness. They, they're just awareness manifesting as color and shape. We can't find um, a color outside of awareness. Every experience is happening within awareness, isn't it? <clears throat> so it seems to be a color outside of awareness that awareness goes out and touches. That's would be called dualistic um, seeing. But um, a color appearing as a manifestation of awareness, a color whose true nature is nothing other than awareness itself, could be called non-dual seeing. So Kazan says, uh, You cannot learn the way from Buddhas. If you want to know why your seeing and hearing do not require someone else's eyes and ears. And also, we might say, do not require someone else's colors and sounds. Nor do your hands and feet need someone else to move them. <clears throat> Every, we have everything within this, um, within our true nature. Everything's already included. We don't need anything uh, external to this. <clears throat> Sentient beings are thus. Buddhas are thus. That one studying this one, or this one studying that one, or that one studying with this one, that person studying with this Buddha, this person studying with that Buddha, is not intimacy. How could that be the way? This is the realm where there there is no other. How could that be the way? Because Buddha Mitra was guarding and maintaining this principle. For 50 years, nothing escaped his mouth, and he did not take a step. Maybe implying that um, any words about objects are um, are extra. Nothing needs to be said here. And uh, he didn't take a step because there's nowhere to go. He was truly a vessel of the Mahayana and simply did not dwell within the defilement of contact. Contact needs an object. Um, he, he didn't dwell within this distortion that um, my foot needs to contact the ground and my, um, my eyes need to contact a color and my ears need to contact a sound. He didn't dwell within uh, this realm where subjects contact objects. Buddha Mitra said, Father and mother are not close to me, or not that intimate with me. Um, these are, quote, your words, as uh, your speech, Buddha Mitra says. Your speech is intimate with your... Um, intrinsic mind. He said, the Buddhas are not my way. <clears throat> uh, 
and never took a step on this way, thus seeking a Buddha with characteristics outside yourself is wrong. Bodhidharma's followers proceed in the way by, quote, this is a a quote attributed to Bodhidharma, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing to the human mind, intimately transmitting this, seeing true nature and being Buddha. So there's this famous verse attributed to Bodhidharma about direct pointing and intimate transmission. Therefore, Kazan says, there's nothing to do but show people this direct pointing and transmit it intimately. So Zen is a path of direct pointing to reality, which from the Indian yoga tradition we could call, that's the path of jnana yoga. But we also have other practices, karma yoga, work practice, and uh, hatha yoga, tuning our body and breath, and um, bhakti yoga, devotional surrender. <clears throat> but jnana yoga, yoga, non-dual awareness yoga, is the path of uh, direct pointing in yogic traditions and in Zen. <clears throat> Bodhidharma's, uh, let's see, there's nothing to do but show people this direct pointing and transmit it intimately. They proceed by just getting people to cut through discriminating thought processes through zazen and letting mold grow around their mouths from not speaking. The mouth gets moldy from, from disuse. The Zen ancestors are like this. Uh, this does not mean avoiding speech and esteeming silence. Of course, it sounds that way, but it doesn't mean that. It's getting you to realize that your mind is thus. This translation. Word emo that means like such or thus, but this translation says it's just getting you to realize that your mind is what it is. That's kind of nice. Mind is like clear water, like space, pure and still interpenetrating without obstruction and free. Therefore, there's not a single thing revealed outside one's own mind, not a particle to obstruct your spirit. That's Kazan's direct pointing all these strange old Indian stories, but uh, it's devotion, out of our devotion, we, we listen to them, because these are our ancestors. If any one of these ancestors were missing, we wouldn't be in this room today, right? So we hear these stories, but luckily, Kazan is interjecting them with this direct pointing 
<clears throat> this is a good one. Can you um, can you drink in these words like um, like ambrosia? Mind is like clear still water, like space, pure and still, interpenetrating everything without obstruction and free. Therefore, there is not a single thing revealed outside mind, not a particle to obstruct your spirit. <clears throat> Here we're talking not about um, our thinking mind, or our perceiving mind, our um, dualistic consciousness that's knowing objects. We're talking about um, the ground mind, the mind ground, the nature of mind. Ordinary mind, so ordinary that it's, um, it never changes. So ordinary that, um, uh, it doesn't have any extraordinary, um, ness to it. Everyday mind. Ordinary mind. <clears throat> the, the, the Chinese for, um, Ordinary mind, uh, Heijoshin is, um, like, um, He is like, uh, level and even and peaceful. And Jo means, I'm sorry about this, it means permanent. <laughs> <laughs> It's the translation for, um, like, nitya, or permanence. So, ordinary, as a compound, this even and, um, uh, even and peaceful combined with permanent, or always the case, as a compound means ordinary. So, ordinary is like, um, always the case. Or sometimes it's translated as everyday mind. But we could literally translate it as um, peaceful, ever-present mind is the way. But it's and how wonderful! I think it's wonderful. This peaceful, ever-present also means ordinary as a compound, just like receiving and employing as a compound in Chinese means enjoying. <clears throat> so um this is the kind of mind this nate the nature of mind that's totally empty, totally ungraspable, that can't be got hold of as an as an objective experience, but allows all objective experience um to uh unfold within itself. like clear water, like empty space, pure and still, even when person is totally agitated. 
interpenetrating, uh, interfused with everything and free. <clears throat> interpenetrating, interfused, uh, all appearances, all colors and sounds, bodily sensations, uh, <clears throat> thoughts and emotions are um, interfused with this spacious, uh, clear, pure nature of mind. It's not, it's not at all separate from all the individual constantly changing experiences. <clears throat> but these experiences, these, these phenomena, uh, in their true nature are actually not really arising and ceasing <clears throat> from the point of view of this empty, spacious uh, knowing. These, all these things, these, um, these uh, impermanent phenomena that appear to be arising and ceasing are not truly arising and ceasing. They are just nothing but uh, the display of the empty, uh, clear knowing. <clears throat> so there's this, I think, kind of underrated line in the Heart Sutra, underappreciated line in the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra is all about emptiness, right? And uh, And it says, therefore... In emptiness, given emptiness, <clears throat> all all are di- all dharmas, all phenomena are marked by emptiness. All phenomena have the characteristic of emptiness. So these phenomena um, neither arise nor cease. Also, they're neither defiled nor pure, and they don't increase or decrease. But particularly the one that really uh, should strike us as a radical line, I think, is uh, <clears throat> all these dharmas from the point of view of emptiness, their character, all these phenomena, these experiences are characterized by emptiness. They don't arise and cease. These phenomena, the things, the experiences, the colors, the sounds, um, the thoughts, the emotions, seem to be arising and ceasing. They seem to be impermanent. But the heart teacher says, uh, like, from the point of view of emptiness, they actually don't arise and cease, which is another way of saying they're not impermanent. The sutra doesn't really say that they're permanent. That would maybe be going too far. But uh, doesn't this imply that that these things, all these phenomena, these experiences that we usually call impermanent, are, from this ultimate point of view of emptiness, are not impermanent. Right? Impermanent means something arises and it ceases. But um, <clears throat> all these phenomena that are characterized by emptiness they actually don't arise and they don't cease. Do you see how that 
is another way of saying they're ultimately they're not impermanent. We wouldn't say their their permanent is going too far, but um, <coughs> but um, not that not only is emptiness not impermanent, but even the the things that are marked by emptiness don't arise and cease. Isn't that a quite a statement? Any uh, questions or comments? Yes. Well, if we say they don't arise and cease, that is the next step to say that they're just ephemeral, that they're like smoke. Doesn't if smoke rises and ceases? Yeah, smoke rises and ceases, right? And I think ephemeral means impermanent, right? Uh, Means they only last for a moment. Um, But that's the usual early teaching of the Buddha, is that um, all phenomena are impermanent, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, ephemeral, means they arise um, and then they cease. (coughs) So... um, the Heart Sutras, that particular section of the Heart Sutras, getting into some interesting territory. It's, it's, it sounds like, um, it sounds like it's contradicting the Buddha's earlier teaching that all, all dharmas, um, are characterized by impermanence. They're constantly arising, maybe abiding for a moment and then ceasing is one version. But maybe even abiding for a moment is too long. But they, um, but they arise and cease. De- dependent arising means that all phenomena, are, uh, at least appear to arise dependent on conditions and then they cease dependent on conditions. But, um, <clears throat> but then the Heart Sutra is saying, um, all these phenomena actually don't really arise and cease. Yes. Uh, I like that part of the sutra. Um, part that's harder is where it goes on to say uh, all these dharmas that are sort of troubling also don't arise and cease. Like old age and death. Yeah. Uh, knowledge, you don't get that one either. There's no knowledge and there's no attainment. Um, there's, there's no suffering, but there's also no end of suffering. Yeah. I think that it's an important part. Yeah. It kind of expresses the the beautiful ordinariness of Dharma's. Yeah. There definitely appears to be the arising of suffering dependent on um, on, um, grasping and, and craving and so on, according to the Buddhist teaching. Suffering arises dependent on these conditions. It's the twelvefold chain of dependent arising. And then the Heart Sutra seems to be saying the opposite. Uh, it's like another perspective. Uh, the painful, the painful experiences, um, strictly speaking, they don't really arise, but they also don't cease. And, um, the end of painful experiences also doesn't arise and doesn't cease. 
And, um, <clears throat> yeah, so that, um, one of the harder ones, I think, from the, from the Heart Sutra side of things, that knowledge is, in Sanskrit, jnana, that's, um, could be translated as non-dual awareness, right? or, um, this ordinary knowing. So, um, so we might, sometimes it sounds like people like Kazan are saying, nothing truly exists in and of itself except the reality of this ordinary mind. But the Heart Sutra goes even further and takes, takes that one away too. There really isn't any, any graspable, um, thing called Buddha nature, non-dual awareness. It doesn't use the word Buddha nature, but jnana. No knowledge, no gnosis, no um, knowing. And uh, I think we could understand that to mean um, any possible way that we could get a hold of that is some kind of experience. It's, it, we can't. Yes? I just say that <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm taking in what Matt just said, which I like to. But it's nothing to attain. A bodhisattva depends on Rajnaparamita. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, interesting that the that the sutra never says there is no Prajnaparamita. It's almost like the one thing that it's not negated in the sutra. Actually, they depend on Prajnaparamita. Yeah. I kind of thought that whole long list of things that it's, it's neither this nor that, it doesn't arise. It's like, give up all of that. Is it arising? Is it ceasing? Is it coming? Is it going? Forget it. You yes. Know, there's no old age. It's a concept. There's no death. It's another concept. Yes. You know, so I, I, that's the direction I've been going in for years. Yeah. Um, I think that, that's which true. Which mean I'm not willing to give it up, but... <laughs> end of this is Pradhyana Paramita and then, right, unsurpassed, complete, whatever. <laughs> yes, it, giving up all ideas um, about anything, that's another way to say it. Yeah. Uh, even ideas about arising and ceasing. Ideas about impermanence and permanence. Um, all these great Dharma ideas, all of it. Um, and that's kind of yesterday's talk yesterday's ancestor was really about that like any way we get a hold of anything with any idea is um <clears throat> problematic so yeah i think that's mind a, is no hindrance right that's one transmission yes and the mind is no hindrance yes right? mm-hmm yep I, the mind is no hindrance or um or the mind has no hindrance it could be translated either way mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. So I think this is what we're talking about, is, um, yeah, any, any way to get a hold of anything, um, any idea about anything is, uh, limited. And yeah, we have all these Dharma ideas to help us, free us from getting stuck in any ideas. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I have, uh, two questions. It's well, kind of the same. But all Dharmas are marked by emptiness. How does that intersect with, um, Buddha nature. How does that relate? Because in my head, I want to say all dharmas have Buddha nature, hmm. um, and then, but I don't know. If that, I don't know if it goes right. And then the, the next thing I was going to ask is, we have they do not arise or cease, but do they change? 
Or what would change be besides arising and ceasing? Many things can change without arising and ceasing. Like what? Firewood turns to ash. So that, there's a moment of firewood that that um, has to cease for a, mm. a new moment of ash to arise. The firewood contains ash, and ash contains firewood. Uh, in that way that it... That, um, I guess it's like, for me, I, I'm like playing with the relative and absolute. Like mm. the, the change is admitting that it might... Saying it changes is saying that relatively it could change. But absolutely, it does not arise or cease. That's right. That's right, yes. Yes, so there's two truths, right? So the relative truth is that um, there are all these phenomena, and they are impermanent, and they arise and cease. And then the ultimate is saying, there isn't anything there to arise or cease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they're both true at the same time. The two truths are inseparable. They're not even really contradictory. They sound like opposites, but it's, it's like two perspectives of one reality. And then, and then you ask them, <clears throat> what this teaching of emptiness, like in the Heart Sutra, what's the relationship of that to these Buddha nature teachings that were, <coughs> Kazan likes to emphasize. And I think one way to hear it is that, um, Buddha nature, uh, is, is another name for emptiness. And some people would say, that's all it means. It's just a synonym for emptiness. But others would say, it's not exactly an exact synonym. It's um, because just the word shunyata or emptiness is just saying that, um, um, it's just talking about the unfindability of anything. But Buddha nature is also the unfindability of anything. It's an, an empty of any graspable um characteristics and yet at the same time it's also aware so that's that that's the twist that's the that's the shift from emptiness uh teaching to um to buddha nature teaching but buddha does say like in the nirvana sutra he says that shunyata is a synonym of buddha nature emptiness and same with the lankavatara sutra so it, we're talking, this ordinary mind we're talking about is completely empty of any graspable, uh, characteristics. And we could even say it is emptiness itself, but it's, but the unique spin of the Buddha nature teachings is this very emptiness that we're speaking of is like alive. It's, um, it's, uh, it's not an inert emptiness. It's an, it's an awake, knowing emptiness. Which, the nice thing about that is, then it's less of like a, a philosophical concept and more like an experiential reality. And we also might say that if, um, if we just leave it at emptiness, um, well, how, you know, the point seems to be realizing this emptiness. What is it that realizes the emptiness? And is that something separate from the emptiness? Um, if it's really a kind of a non-dual realization, direct realization of emptiness, um, isn't there some awareness there at this, um, in the midst of the emptiness? That's, I think, the virtues of these Buddha nature teachings. So all, all, and then, and then, um, the Heart Sutra, we could hear it 
from a Buddha nature perspective, uh, especially the the most essential central lines of form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. If we if we take emptiness to be Buddha nature, to be the boundless, clear, uh, <coughs> clear like clear water, like empty space, pure and still, um, interpenetrating with everything, interfused with everything, without obstruction and free, that 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 emptiness is an aware emptiness, and then everything that appears within it, like the forms that appear within the empty space of awareness, are nothing but the empty space of awareness, right? Appearing as changing form. Their nature is just awareness itself. When we look for this color, all we find is, the empty awareness manifesting as as a color or a sound. So in that way, form itself, form and color and sound, is itself emptiness, in parentheses. Buddha nature is itself empty awareness. Empty awareness is itself colors and sounds and so on. So that would be a kind of a, a Buddha nature interpretation of a heart sutra. Not the way that it's usually understood, but it's, you know, it's similar. Yes? So as a practitioner, how do you, I guess, tell the difference whether you're leaning too much towards emptiness teachings versus the forms, emptiness and forms? Because you could be attached to the emptiness to teaching. If we make it into something, if we make emptiness into, like an idea of emptiness, then we can attach to it. So, so yeah, that would be the, what you say, like, leaning too much into the emptiness side of things. Yeah, we can only lean into it if we make it into something. So, um, so actual emptiness can't really be leaned into. But of course, as practitioners, we can, yeah, we can, we can, we can subtly or even unconsciously make it into something and then, um, lean towards it as a way to um, maybe uh, not have to deal with form, for example. Whereas we hear that form itself is emptiness, then the way to um, to be devoted to emptiness or Buddha nature is to be devoted to the particular expressions of it that we call form or colors and sounds and people and so on. So, um, yeah, the only way we can, we can follow one side or another is by, by conceptualizing, overly conceptualizing, which is, you know, seems like we, this is a danger of that when we're talking so much about this stuff. But all these words are just fingers pointing at the moon, right? They're, they're, um, <clears throat> we just, we just hopefully get more and more some, of some sense of like, it is actually, all ungraspable, and it's not an inert um, nothingness that's ungraspable. It's an aware, living, um, uh, knowing ungraspability. Of course, whenever I'm using this word knowing, I'm not talking about conceptual knowing or knowing a thing, but just cognizance itself, empty, undivided knowing. <clears throat> 